Welcome to Work and the Future, a podcast about tomorrow, with your host, Linda Nazareth. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us today. You know, with the economy heating up, we're seeing a huge surge in hiring, or at least a surge in companies trying to hire. In fact, what we have in many cases is a surge in companies battling to find top-notch candidates. As they look for the best hires, some are turning to data-driven hiring, basically making the best use of technology to fill roles rather than culling through resumes the old-fashioned way and then relying really heavily on an interview. As might be expected, though, this is a huge and controversial way to hire, and there are pluses and minuses to the approach. Now, to talk about how all of it works, I'm going to be joined today by Matthew Bidwell. Matthew is an associate professor at the Wharton School, and his research is centered around examining patterns in work and employment. He has some great thoughts on where data-driven hiring may take us. It's a really interesting conversation. Please stay with us. Well, what is data-driven recruitment and what will it do to the hiring process if it's widely implemented? Our guest today is Matthew Bidwell. He's Associate Professor of Management at the Wharton School. He joins me now to talk about the topic and what he thinks the pros and the cons of hiring this way might be. Hi, Matthew. Hi, Linda. How are you? Good, thank you. Let's talk about this whole phenomenon of data-driven hiring. How would you define it? And what kind of technology are we talking about? That's a great question. Um, I mean, we can probably think about it along two dimensions. Um, One is along the attempt to gather more systematic data for our hiring processes. The second is to use that data in more systematic ways. Um, You know, in some ways, there's always been a spectrum for hiring. So um, there are a lot of people and organizations that have always had kind of a bit of a, a shoot from the hip approach to hiring in terms of, you know, just do they feel good about the candidate? Um, at the same time, you know, I think for 50 or 60 years plus, there have been um, organizations which have been much more systematic in trying to gather data on their um on applicants, so particularly having them do personality tests and other psychometric tests to go alongside, um, you know, formal information about their education experience um, and more structured into. So we, we always had that difference. Um, I think these days there are more and more attempts to capture new kinds of data. Um, so people are having a lot of fun with games, um, and so. I think some people hope that using games can enable them to capture different data from the data that they used to be able to, that, you know, by having somebody get involved in a realistic scenario through a game, we certainly collect a lot of data points about all the decisions we make. And there is a hope, I've yet to see rigorous data on this, but there is a hope that that can tell us new things about people. Um, I think the other great advantage of games in hiring is a sense that they are, they're more fun and engaging. I think one of the challenges, you know, hiring is always a um, a two-way process, right? You're trying to persuade people to join your organization at the same time as you're trying to evaluate them. And I think there's a hope that the games are more fun and so you can kind of keep people engaged in this data collection process. Well, let me just understand it. So we're talking about games before the interview, like as part of the vetting process? 
Yes. Yeah, exactly. So you'll go online um, as part of your application and you'll play a game. And so maybe for a consulting firm, there might be some kind of scenario, choose your own adventure based game where they kind of you play a consultant working through a case. Um, they can also just be some games that are more divorced from um, more divorced from the workplace context, but are still seen as ways to try and assess your adaptability, maybe a little bit your resilience, your kind of intelligence, decision-making, all of those sorts of things. So this is quite apart from your actual technical ability to be an accountant or whatever else, an engineer, it's your personality. Yeah, yeah, it could be, it could be a bunch of things. So um, yeah, I mean, kind of sheer technical ability, you're probably more likely to get at with some sort of test or work sample. Um, this, in a sense, trying to get at some of these characteristics that underlie um, that technical ability. Um, and so getting to kind of intelligence, decision-making, those sorts of things. So um, I'm on the fence on these, I would say. Um, they're a really intriguing idea. Um, what you really want to see is is the evidence that they work, and I think also the evidence that they work better than other ways of gathering data from people. And by the evidence that they work, what I really mean is the people who perform better in these games also then perform better um, as employees. Um, so it's, I think, some of the more interesting new forms of, of data gathering that we have um, that we have currently. So that's kind of one side of data-driven hiring. The other side, which I think is really newer and more interesting, is in the really systematic use of this data to make hiring decisions. Um, and so we've always, you know, we've always had kind of the committee or the hiring manager kind of leafing through resumes, thinking about the interviews and so on. And again, some places this has been more systematic than others. Um, what you see now is people using algorithms to actually just crunch the data. Like this is all the data we've gathered on this person. Now let's go through and make a prediction about how good an employee they would be. And so with, with at least in the initial stages, taking out that human judgment and just relying on an algorithm to, to crunch those numbers to give us a prediction about how the person would perform. Okay, so let's talk about how this works. Suppose you were applying for a position as a professor somewhere else. So they have your academic record and whatever is on the curriculum vitae. Do they go further and look at whatever else is on the web about you? Um, they could do, probably not if they were, I mean, if you were, Going to, um, so I would say we don't tend to see this so much for kind of jobs of very experienced people like professors, but yes, what you would basically do would be you would turn my entire Vita into data. And so you would look at things like, you quantify the number of publications, the quality of the journals that they were in, kind of the number of co-authors and where I ranked on those co-authors. Um, the number of citations. You would also then look at all of my teaching evaluations and kind of quantify those. And you maybe add in the number of classes that I'd taught, probably add in something from the number of administrative positions that I had taken. And you would turn all of that into some sort of score where that score was calibrated based on who are the professors we like the most at our organization, who are the professors that we like the least, and which of these scores kind of predict 
who's going to be the um, most successful professor. So I don't know of any college that is currently doing this. Um, would it be a better way to hire professors than what we usually do? Um, I'm not sure it would be worse. <laughs> you know, maybe it's a matter of time, right? It's not commonly done at this point. It hasn't been completely embraced. I think where people get particularly concerned about is that they're not just looking at your academic work and where you publish, but they may be looking at other sites and what sports do you play and how much time have you put into other things and, and what's going on in your personal life. And, and maybe that's not happening, but I think that's the concern. Is that part of what these things can pick up? I haven't seen so much of that. So what you're talking about there is that um, well, there's a whole bunch of things. So one is this: kind of, some of that information is on your resume, right? Yeah. And so there's some stuff that we can lack up on your resume that has your extracurricular activities. That can actually play a role in in data-driven hiring. And so one one set of processes that people are looking at being trialed in some places is to actually take resumes and turn those into systematic data that at a minimum will allow us to predict which applicants we would usually hire. Um, and for that, yes, it is likely to go beyond my um, education, my job experience, and just look at everything that's on the Vita. Um, there's a logic to that. I, again, I haven't seen the data on this, but I don't think it is crazy for employers to say quite like people who've run marathons, right? They're you know, there's a hypothesis that this is suggests that there's a certain amount of kind of conscientiousness and stick to itiveness about you that might translate into the um, into the professional workplace. And so, you know, there are some signals on a um, resume. Somebody says they won the spelling, you know, the national spelling bee champion or a national champion in something else is telling you something, right? And so, it's not crazy to take that into account in your decision. And so, we do see these things feeding through that we tend to see as legitimate even i mean there are definitely important concerns about um bias there yes um what i think is even more interesting is yeah when you go to facebook instagram those sorts of things and you're you're using that data as well um because that's not data that the candidate has chosen Right. That's really you. my question. What if you look further and say, well, I don't like what's on this guy's Instagram, which you could do even if you were doing it without one of these systems, but are they systematically looking at it? I think when people are doing that, it is not, I mean, that I haven't seen kind of many times. The one place where I know companies have been looking at social media is actually on the other side, which is to think about attrition. So an idea that particularly if I start updating my LinkedIn profile and that sort of thing, that's probably an indication that I may be looking for other roles. Um, I think, you know, I think checking of social media as part of hiring is widespread, but not in kind of systematic data-driven sort of way. I think much more in a somewhere between due diligence and CYA. Is there anything on here that's going to come back to um, to bite us? And that's a yeah, it's a big it's a big concern that this information is in the public domain and ends up being used for purposes that it was not put there for. So, okay, let's say you go through this, you find your candidates. Usually it's a screening process anyway, however you do it. And when the person's in the room, that's where you make your decision. Do you think this, at least for larger companies, will be 
more important? Will the interview be less important? So it's one manager says, you know what? I really like that person. And then somebody says, look, yeah, but their score just wasn't that high. So it doesn't really matter. I think it could do. The, um, I mean, the early evidence on this is that when you do give people this kind of information, they pay attention to it. And so, yes, you, I mean, so one question is kind of, do we, do we just take the people out of the loop and just, just let the algorithm decide? We're not seeing much of that, I think, and people have concerns about that. Um, but it is more of this advisory role. Um, people do seem to take it seriously. Um, and I would argue that's usually a good thing. Um, the evidence on interviews is mixed, right? Um, so I think a well-structured interview can be reasonably predictive of performance. A poorly structured interview tends not to be that predictive. And so interviews, they can tell you useful stuff about the person. I mean, particularly, I think there's a sense that they're another indicator of how smart the person is, kind of how verbal. Um, you can get useful information about their background, but we have a huge concern that a lot of what's going on is a, um, you know, just triggering all, the, triggering all these interpersonal questions about, do I like this person? Um, which doesn't tell you very much about how they're going to perform in the job. So it's not particularly fit for purpose. And on, on top of that, obviously, again, huge scope for bias to um, play in. So yes, I suspect as these become more widespread, probably the importance of the interview starts to decline. And I suspect that's probably a good thing on average. Yeah, I think you get some debate about that because I agree, but there's still this perception that cultural fit matters. And for sure that can lead to bias, but obviously you know, well, we, they have to work as a part of this team and they may be really great at you know, research and publishing, but if we all hate him, that's not gonna work. So uh, it'll be a while. So I 100% agree that cultural fit matters, but I also believe it can become part of the um, part of the recruiting process. So I think cultural fit as, you know, we really need people in this organization who are good collaborators, as opposed to other organizations might be, actually people here tend to have slightly sharp elbows and you need to not be afraid of getting things done. You know, those are two different cultures and somebody who's a good fit in one of those organizations is not gonna be a good fit in the other. Um, but that I think is much more about defining the kind of personality that you want and using interviews or other things to really assess that. Um, I think the idea of the, in, yeah, I think too often we define cultural fit as, I got a warm feeling from this person. And I don't think that really is cultural fit. Um, it tells you how well you'll get on with them in a brief interaction. Um, I'm not sure it tells you so much how successful they're going to continue to be after um, after a few months in the job. And so I think there is a some sort of interpersonal skill is necessary, but I think what you get from a half hour or one hour interview isn't necessarily terribly representative of how well actually they're going to get on with people over a much more extended period of time. Do we have any data as to whether this stops turnover? Because that's obviously a major issue. You're trying to find the right person and have them stay in the job. Yeah, I mean, there have been a number of um, number of examples of organizations that have done this. So really, I mean, there's one, one example of a company filling clerical jobs, and they created a um, basically a, an online test that you took beforehand, which would include um, 
you know, some tests of job knowledge, some personality-based questions, some scenario-based questions. Um, and they basically selected candidates who most resemble people are successful in the job. The big effect of that, actually, I think even more than increasing performance was to reduce attrition, that they were better able to find people who were a good fit for the job. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of a believer in these. And I think it's not actually because I believe data's magical. Um, I think, you know, all of these processes, there's a huge amount of stuff that we're missing. Like there's a huge amount of really important data, like you know, certain aspects of fit and so on that are hard to capture. I tend to believe in them because I think that inherently we do a fairly terrible job of this. Um, and so I think it's um, the processes that people, our, our current judgment is really quite flawed. And I do think that these data-driven approaches by being systematic usually get to a slightly better place. I was reading about some of the different technologies available and I understand they also track hiring managers. So you can look at one and say, is he spending more time with all the male candidates? Is, is there certain things that make him you know, stop the conversations? Uh, talk to that and also talk to how that is received. That's a great question. There's a balance, right? I mean, I think when it comes to questions about bias, um, a lot of these problems have proved far harder to resolve than we initially thought. Um, and so, you know, as usual, well, we just told people to stop being biased and, and maybe gave them some training. Um, that'd be useful. The research on training has been really depressing. Um, it's not been found to be terribly effective in most situations at, at improving outcomes. Accountability tends to work better. And so I think more of the researchers said that when I know I'm going to be accountable for how I behave and the decisions I make, I put more thought into it and I'm more careful. So from that perspective, yes, I think people don't like being monitored. Um, I can imagine as a hiring manager finding that stressful and intrusive. But on the other hand, if we have reasonable grounds to worry that I'm um, certain minority candidates and so on are being treated differently. This is a sensible way to just, you know, I think on the one hand, just make sure everybody's being sharp and thoughtful. And also if there are problems after the event to, um, you know, to be able to bring data to people and say, look, I know you all think you're being fair. We're all trying. Nobody's accusing everybody of being a terrible person. But I think we all just need to look at this data and think about what we're doing in ways that, that might lead to these patterns that kind of look biased on the face of them. Okay, so you're trying to track everything as, as well as you can. You're trying to bring in the, the best people. And yet there have been examples of companies who, despite their best efforts, managed to screen out people they want to hire because the algorithm is working, is written in a way that the words they're looking for, whatever else is screening out women or other things. How close are we, get, are we to getting like better technology on this? Yeah, I mean, I think you really need to um, differentiate, I would say, between kind of dumb screening algorithms and smart screening algorithms. So dumb screening algorithms are what the overwhelming majority of organizations that are doing this currently use, which is basically, I'm going to put in some keywords and I'm going to put in some basic requirements. And I want you to screen out anybody who doesn't meet all of these. Um, and there's a whole host of problems with that. Um, you know, one of the biggest ones is um, anybody say who puts the wrong keywords in their resume or doesn't put them in 
exactly the right way gets screened out. That's crazy. Um, I think almost as bad, say we have 10 requirements. In reality, we'll usually hire somebody who looks really good on eight of those on the basis that, you know, those other twos, they're nice to have and we can work around it. Um, whereas, you know, if we list this as kind of you need these 10 to make it through the um, make it through the screen, we're not going to get any of this. So that's kind of the, these dumb systems. And yeah, we hear nothing but horror stories about them. Um, <laughs> I was saying they often talk about hiring a purple squirrel, right? You know, it's like you're kind of you're creating this requirement for somebody you can't find. Very, it's quite easy to get a purple squirrel. All you need to do is hire a squirrel and then dye them purple. And I think that's kind of you know what most organisations actually do. Okay, we'll take somebody who's close enough and fix it. Um, smart. So I think smart systems. What they do is they are. Um, Take a broader view of what the keywords are. So it's like, we want these things. So we're also going to accept a bunch of keywords that are kind of semantically similar to these. But the other thing they do is they, they don't say yes or no. They give you a score. And so they enable you to see this person does really well on seven out of our criteria. Um, and two of them are iffy and one of them's not there at all. But I'm going to forward it to the hiring manager because overall this person looks pretty good as opposed to somebody who's kind of, you know, Week on five of them, or so on. So I think a kind of a a less clear cut, but kind of more sophisticated in terms of both the ability to understand different kinds of keywords and not just kind of black and white, but also kind of just scoring people so that we accept people who are good on a bunch of our criteria without all that. That I think could be more successful. So basically, you're making this sort of like the LSAT, law school admissions test. So you have a score and sub-scores and everyone's looking at that as the first go-around kind of thing for every candidate? Yep. Yeah. And I mean, I think you can even, yeah, it can continue to inform what people are doing beyond. So even beyond that first go-around, you would probably want to continue to pay attention to it through the interviews and afterwards. And this is all stuff you do when it's when it's hard to find, well, it's always hard to find people, but if there's lots of people competing for jobs, then you can put them through these hoops, right? At the moment, it's a pretty tight labor market for a lot of different sectors. Do you think we're going to see a lot of growth in this right now, or is it just going to be a matter of like, we just take whoever we can get in the short term? It's a tight labor market, but I mean, I think big employers still continue to get thousands and thousands and thousands of resumes. So yes, if you're if you're paying the lowest wage that you can, you don't have a particularly good reputation as an employer and nobody's heard of you, you may well take whoever you can get. If you have a reputation for a good employer that as a good employer that does a good job of kind of developing people, um, good place to work, I I think you're still making choices, right? You're still, you have more applicants than jobs, and you're still trying to figure out which of these people do we really want to hire? And so in that case, I think you're right. I mean, it's so funny. Like we went from incredibly tight labor market to, oh my God, the bottom fell out of it. Um, and like that, suddenly we're back to really tight labor market. And I have to say that makes me incredibly happy because all of the great things like training and increasing wages and those sorts of things that we think are really good happen in tight labor markets. Um, it probably does shift us companies a little more to kind of how do we attract people and retain them 
and a little away from how they select them. But I still think, you know, even in tight labor markets, if you're a good employer, you still want to know which of these people are going to work for me. It'll be really interesting to see how it develops. Matthew, thanks so much for talking to me today. No problem. Nice to talk to you. Matthew Bidwell is an Associate Professor of Management at the Morton School. Well, that's it for today. If you'd like to learn more about Matthew and his work, please check out our show notes, the find some material there and links. And please check out my website at relentlesseconomics.com or connect with me on Twitter at Relentless Eco. Now, if you did enjoy this conversation about the future of work, please take a moment and leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. It'll really help people to find us and help us to continue these discussions about the future of work. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, as always, to Stokely Audio for audio production. To learn more about work and the future and to see show notes, go to the workandthefuturepodcast.com. You can also contact us at comments at theworkandthefuturepodcast.com. The Work in the Future podcast with Linda Nazareth is a relentless economics production.